Hey everyone, Dr. Pat and I would personally like to invite you to join us in our Grow My Baby program. This is week-by-week pregnancy and birth information developed from our experience of helping more than 4,000 women grow and birth their babies. All our links are on our website, growmybaby.com.au. The information in this podcast is provided for education and research information only. It is not a substitute for professional health advice. If you're trying to get pregnant or you are pregnant and you feel a little bit overwhelmed by all you need to know, then this is the right podcast for you. Welcome to the show. I'm Bridget Maloney. And I'm obstetrician Dr. Patrick Maloney. And this is The Kick, your expert-led podcast that delivers the essentials of growing a baby. Make sure you head to our website, growmybaby.com.au, to get some awesome free tools like our Pregnancy Knowledge Checker to help you feel like you got this. Well, welcome, everyone. Welcome back, everybody. Yeah, we're going to do a Q&A today. I'm excited. that I love the Q&As. We're a bit late on doing Q&As. So oh, people, okay. Yeah, Look. so people um, have been sending Q&As in and saying, oh, I'm 35 weeks pregnant or whatever. I oh, know, they'll already have had the <laughs> babies. Sorry. S- sorry about that, but we're still going to cover it because they're really great questions. This is where we get lots of our gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and we know what you want to hear when you send us in your questions, um, and it helps to guide other podcasts. So you send in questions and we think, oh, well, we'll put them in the Q&A, but then we also think, no, that's a topic in itself. Let's yeah. do a whole episode on that. And if we get four sort of questions or four speak pipes about the same thing, it tells us that there's a, a, a topic out there that, that is trending that people want to know about. Yeah, and it's not covered and, and the good old Google search. <laughs> it's not coming up with enough. <laughs> All right, so let's start, Pat. We're going to start with Alice. I've got lots of speak pipes, but I'll read this one out. Long-time listener here. My question is about breast growth in pregnancy. My first pregnancy, I went from a D cup to an H cup. Surprised to learn that this size exists. I went on to have a reduction several years later, thinking I was finished with having babies. Now currently 14 weeks pregnant with baby two and 10 years older. I've already made the same amount of breast growth as my first pregnancy. Are you able to tell me why? And generally, when these hormonal changes will end. Will they continue to grow until my milk comes in? Are some women more prone to this than others? I'm an average sized woman, so I'm feeling very top heavy. Thoughts appreciated. So this happens a bit. Oh, I'm so I'm sorry that she's had a reduction and, and here she yeah, is again. Yeah. So that maybe we'll deal with that issue first. Yeah. Uh I'm not a plastic surgeon, but I think the plastics guys really like you to be finished. Mm. You, your uh family and certainly your breastfeeding um time before they do the operation. Mm. Because every breast has got lactational tissue in it. And if you have a breast reduction, you just have less of it, but it's still there. And then you're going to have another pregnancy. Um, the pregnancy hormones fire up that lactational tissue because that's what, that's what the, you know, one of the reasons the breast is there. And bingo, it gets bigger. Not in the plan of someone who's had a previous reduction and was happy where they were. Mm. She does say that she's 10 years older, and that's what happens, isn't it? You yeah, know? so maybe maybe at the time the reduction was done, she didn't plan to have any mm. more children, but, but here we are. And I guess that's why if you go and talk to a, a plastic surgeon about a breast reduction, uh, they're probably going to be interested in whether you've finished your family or not, as much as these things can be predicted. Mm. So breast growth in pregnancy is normal. Um, they're likely to continue to get bigger as the uh, time of lactation approaches. Then they're going to be the larger size while the lactation goes on and get smaller again afterwards. But small back to the original breast size? Well, maybe not. Like maybe maybe just continue to grow per pregnancy in some people. Mm. Uh, some people disappear altogether. 
So the, the I, guess, I guess the point here is that what's going on is normal. And then at the end of the day, at the end of the time of lactation, kind of work out whether that's the size we're happy with or not. So she's gone from a D cup to an H cup and she's asked, um, will they continue to grow until her milk comes in? And you're saying yes. Probably, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So so I think, I mean, I th- you know, I, f- I feel for this person who's contacted her. Clearly this is not what she wants to happen, mm. but it's going to happen because she's pregnant. And then she'll have a period of lactation and then at the end of the day, if she's not happy with where she is, back to the plastic surgeon, talk, about, talk to them. About it again. Oh wow! <laughs> I, know, I know it's yeah. It's not. It's not. It's not fair. But uh, you know that this is this is really a normal thing to be happening. And there's such variation, isn't it? Because some women, me, <laughs> went back to kind of like Pez pancakes afterwards. Like you know, just nothing huge, after lactation. <laughs> huge variation. Yeah. Yeah. Huge variation. So from a, a medical point of view, um, we talk about the importance of of um, having a proper bra when you're pregnant. Mm. Um, you've got to get. New, new size, mm. um, everything's going to change. Having proper um, bra when you're lactating, so that people, all of those things that people report sometimes about the larger breast giving them uh, back pain and shoulder pain and so forth, sometimes that's wrong wrong support. Mm. And you can minimise those things with the right support. But at the very end of the process, it, you know, it is what it is. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Alice. Probably not the information that you were really looking forward to hearing. There's no way to fix it, Alice. I'm, uh, you know, other than to see how you go at the end and, and work out whether that's a, a body shape you're comfortable with. Yeah. All right. We are going to um, hear from our next s- s- caller. It's a speak pipe. Here we go, Patty. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Pat and Bridget. I love the podcast. I've been listening for about eight months now from the United States. Um, so I'm currently about seven weeks pregnant with my rainbow baby after a miscarriage earlier this year. And I started having symptoms around five weeks um, and they really kicked up in the sixth week. So nausea, some food aversions, fatigue, headaches, some light cramping. Um, But the symptoms are really fluctuating. So one day will be really bad and then the next day I won't feel anything and I won't feel like I'm pregnant at all, um, which kind of worries me whenever that happens that something's going wrong. So my question is, how normal is it for pregnancy symptoms to fluctuate in the first trimester? And is there a point at which you would want to reach out to your provider if your symptoms are changing a lot? Thanks so much. Great speak pipe question. <laughs> and how awesome that we've got people Sending speak pipes from America. I love oh, it. Oh, you wait. We've got speak pipes from everywhere coming up. I love it. Yeah. That, that is fantastic. Uh, yeah. So this is a this is a daily practice issue in obstetrics. I get a phone call about this a couple of times a week. And it is, um, you know, is something wrong because my early pregnancy symptoms have disappeared? And the answer is that that's not really a reliable sign of anything. Uh, so we, 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 we encourage people to concentrate on severe cramps the presence or absence of bleeding as being maybe a problem, a sign that something's wrong or a miscarriage is coming. But the presence or absence of the pregnancy symptoms is really neither here nor there. Mm. If we look at someone, for example, who comes in and says at, at eight weeks and says, all my pregnancy symptoms have disappeared and they have a scan because of that, then yes, you'll pick up the odd missed miscarriage that, that way. But the vast majority of people who say my pregnancy symptoms have disappeared at eight weeks and I've had no bleeding will have a normal skin. Mm. 
It's just it's statistics, a, isn't it? It's, yeah. a, it's not reliable. Mm. Yeah. What do we do in this situation? Firstly, it can be reassuring for people to know that the pregnancy symptoms can come and go. And you might even have some days when you have zero pregnancy symptoms and the day before you had nausea, uh, food aversion, lightheadedness, the worst. And to know that that's normal and the symptoms will uh, fluctuate is normal. Presumably what's going on is the pregnancy hormones aren't going backwards, they're actually going forwards, but the the body's reaction to them can change from day to day. Mm. So um, they are not in themselves a reliable sign of a problem. So if you're freaking out, what you need, you don't, you don't, you don't need more pregnancy hormone levels in an ultrasound. Mm. Yeah. So we do do the odd early pregnancy ultrasound when we don't really hugely suspect a problem, but we're trying to treat anxiety. Yeah. And and say, radio, here's a here's a quick look at the fetal heart to show you that everything's fine. Mm. And some people haven't yet. Uh, they've seen perhaps their GP or yep. their um, first doctor, but yep. not their obstetrician or midwife, yep. um, that GP, would they send them off to have an yeah, ultrasound? Look, or? I think that's a legitimate thing to do. Mm. Um, if someone has real concerns and is experiencing a lot of anxiety about the apparent absence of pregnancy symptoms and they're somewhere between the positive pregnancy test and formally booking with the pregnancy service, uh, that a local doc could send them for a quick ultrasound to show that everything was okay. Mm, and they might have already had their dating scan, for example. Yeah, yeah. so they know that they're pregnant, the pregnancy is in the uterus and the fetal heart is beating, but maybe it's a couple of weeks later. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think I think it's, a, it's a, a kind and medically appropriate thing to do for pregnant women is to, is to do uh, a quick ultrasound to reassure them if they're very, very anxious about the absence of, of pregnancy symptoms. Mm. I think that that is good medical care to do that. All right. Um, but, and of course, once a person's formally booked with a private obstetrician or a pregnancy service or whatever, then then often those places will have their own scanner mm. and can just quickly scan people for reassurance. Yeah. Mm. Good. Don't be um, afraid or uh, think that you're bothering anybody or whatever. Like, what's the worst that can happen? They'll say no. <laughs> you might as well ask and see, can I have a, a scan just to reassure me that everything's okay? Yes, and I think you know once in a blue moon we do see someone at at ten and a half weeks who comes in and has that first ultrasound at as late as ten and a half weeks, and it's there's a miscarriage there, mm. and you can see a little fetal pole that's only six weeks long, and you know that the miscarriage happened four weeks earlier, and you know if the pregnancy symptoms disappeared four weeks earlier, I often think actually I would have preferred to have heard from you, yeah, back then, then we would have had this. Diagnosed earlier and managed, mm. and managed quicker, mm. rather than having you think everything was fine. Yeah, for another month. Yeah. Mm. So I think that um, that uh, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to ask for, and in our system, we certainly like to provide it if we can. Yeah. Good luck. I hope that um, helps answer your question. Um, I'm going to go on to the next one. Hi, Dr. Pat and Bridget. Firstly, love your podcast. Thank you for doing everything that you do. My question today is in relation to having a fever during the first trimester of pregnancy. I am currently 10 weeks pregnant with my second child. And unfortunately, I suffered from the flu when I was at five weeks and also had COVID when I was eight weeks pregnant. During my research, um, 
online, they say that if you do have a fever during the first trimester of pregnancy, it can increase the risk and likelihood of birth defects and other complications for the baby. So my question today is to get some more clarification on the realities of the situation and how likely it would be that my child would have some adverse effects from getting sick twice during the first trimester of pregnancy. Thank you. Mm. It, that's ter- another terrific question. It's a, it is a hard one. It is a hard one. There is some evidence that prolonged high temperatures for an early pregnancy m- may possibly lead to an increased rate of birth defects. And, you know, it, it makes sense that, you know, we, I've, I've said it on here before that it's a miracle it ever works when you have a baby. Mm. Um, sperm and egg come together, a massive, massive uh, big zip of, DNA from parents coming together to make a whole new person. It's hugely complicated. And there's a, there's a reasonably narrow window of circumstances in which it'll work properly. Yeah, And um, exposing that early, very early pregnancies to excess temperatures is thought in some cases. What the evidence suggests is that, that, is that those high temperatures probably need to be either very, very high or, or very prolonged. Mm. So we don't think that that seasonal flu um, in itself is an important cause of defects. We think that, that, that having really high temperatures as a result of having seasonal flu may be important. So it's not so much avoiding the virus, although we can do that with vaccination and, uh, um, and uh, you know, uh, minimising um, exposure to, sick, to obviously sick people. Uh, but it's one of the reasons why we like in early pregnancy, if someone's got a flu-like illness and is experiencing fevers, that we would treat those fevers fairly aggressively. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a non-pregnant person, we might say, oh, well, you'll be hot and you'll be cold and you'll be hot and you'll be cold. You can ride that out. Yeah. So just with like Panadol or... Yeah, paracetamol and fluids. Yeah. There's nothing, it's not rocket science. It's just you have a lot of paracetamol to try and keep a lid on fevers and fluids. After that, what do you do? This is a it's a complex situation because we don't even fully understand how this works, and we certainly can't fix it. Yeah, so then we've got to just do the normal testing and look for obvious birth defects. Mm. What do I do in my private practice? I can speak to that easily. Is that I like people to have an NIPS test for Down syndrome at ten weeks, and I like that to be done in conjunction with an expert ultrasound. Mm. Now, the, the, the primary reason for that is that I don't want to tell somebody that their baby doesn't have Down syndrome just through the blood test. But on ultrasound, there's a clear problem that's just as bad or worse mm. uh, that, that we'd, we'd miss if we didn't do a scan. Yeah. So I like the scan to be done as well at the 10 weeks. And then I also like people to have a 13-week scan. It's a lot of scanning, but the 13-week scan can find some, some birth defects that are not seen on a 10. Mm. complex cardiac defects, a small number of which can't be fixed, and, you know, spina bifida and so forth. So we do a fair bit of scanning, and I guess if you'd had a fever in the early stages of pregnancy, I think you would at least want those. Mm. The problem beyond that, of course, is that there are lots of things that can happen in a pregnancy, things that can go wrong, birth defects that can come to light that can't be seen on either of those scans mm. or the 20-week scan. So those scans are not a test before for perfection. If somebody had had a, a high fever in early pregnancy, it would be most unlikely on current evidence that somebody would be so concerned about that that they would consider termination of pregnancy purely because they had a fever. Mm. 
in the absence of any evidence that that fever had, had caused a problem. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, so, so we really have no choice but to carry on, do the scans, mm. and hope for the best. And and you know have a healthy pregnancy by doing all the other yeah, measures that you should be doing. Now and, that's yeah. exactly right. Moving our attention away from something we can't control mm. onto the things we can control. Mm. So we say, oh, that is what it is. I had a fever. It was well treated. There doesn't seem to be any problems on, on the 10 or 13 week scan. I'm going to try and mentally move on from that and concentrate on the things I can control. Mm. Body weight, non-smoker, daily exercise, doing something proactive for my mental health. Because mm. I can do something about all those. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I know, and like Google in this situation really isn't your friend because, oh, no. you know, this can really get you to go down all those rabbit holes where you think, oh, my God, you know, I couldn't control that, but, yes, I did have a fever. What's yeah. my baby going to be and, like? And you know? you'll dig up some study that say that if your temperature is one degree higher for 10 minutes in early pregnancy, it caused 1% more mm. um, cardiac defects at birth. But what those rabbit holes don't tell you is, what the hell are you going to do about that? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Um, you're going to say, oh, what? That's a bummer, mm. but I but there's nothing in this, nothing I can do about that. I I want to really touch briefly on something that you said about um, good quality ultrasound. Can you quickly sort of tell people what you mean by that? Oh, I mean a reliable provider. So every obstetric care provider will have a a favourite ultrasound team, mm. and what we want what we want from a from our favourite ultrasound team is expertise. They're often people who pretty much do pregnancy scanning all day and get extremely good at it. Sometimes they're just really, really good general imaging people, but increasingly we turn to services that are women's health focused mm. and get very good at it by only doing that all day and not not uh, broken bones and and strained knees and that um, and availability. Mm. We, we want the we want the clinic to let us in the door when we need them. Yeah. yeah. And there's just, for people, say, with complex ultrasound needs, there are some obstetricians that are also ultrasound people. Uh, yep. So in the- What um, are they called again? Uh, they're called um, COGUS scanners. COGUS. Yeah. yeah. So in the, in the Australian system, we have um, some subspecialties within obstetrics and gynecology. And one of those subspecialties is called uh, a clinical obstetric and gynecological ultrasound. And these are doctors who are specialist obstetricians and gynecologists like me, but they've done additional training to become expert ultrasound people. Mm. And sometimes we use those guys, not a general sonographer service, where those people tend to be ultrasound ultrasound uh, technicians and radiologists doing the reports. Sometimes we use a service where we get the scan done by a fellow obstetrician who's an ultrasound expert. You're listening to The Kick with Dr. Pat and Bridget. How many times have you Googled something about your pregnancy? When I was pregnant all the time, Dr. Pat. (laughs) We get it. You may be confused or overwhelmed. It's normal to want information, but where's the reliable stuff from experts? Yeah. Now, if you like our podcast... Dr. Pat and I have developed an online program to help guide you through whatever stage of pregnancy you're at. It's taken us literally two years to put it together. Two long, hard years, wasn't it? (laughs) But, you know, it is a game changer in how pregnancy information is given. 
Now, how it works is uh, you get to sign up at whatever stage of pregnancy you're at. Like, so you could be pre-pregnant in your very early stages of pregnancy, late pregnancy, preparing for birth, or maybe you've just brought your baby home and you get lots of information around that. And then you also get to join our closed Facebook group. We've called in all our contacts too. So we've got a dietitian, an anaesthetist, physiotherapist. Sonographer. Yeah, who else? A pediatric nurse, obstetrician, mother of four. Oh, just all the people you need to hear from. So if that's you, come and join us at www.growmybaby.com.au. And some people might think, well, my obstetrician just did the scans. Is that enough? Uh, if they're like me, they're very good at using first trimester scanning to tell the patient that everything's fine, baby's the right length, heart's beating, but the expertise might run out about there. Mm. So I've got an ultra, I've got three ultrasound machines in our in our office, as you know, and I use them every all the time, all the time <laughs> every minute of every day. Um, and I consider myself to be a um, a good scanner of early pregnancy. I consider myself to have pretty good skills at doing growth scans in the third trimester to make sure baby's not too big or too small. And I'm a pretty good transvaginal gynecological scanner mm. for fibroid uterus, uh, ovarian cyst and so forth. But I don't do technical obstetric scans. Mm. So I don't think I would rate myself at all at finding the subtle signs on a 13-week ultrasound that these guys can find. Mm. Um, no skills there at all. And so I send those those um, those scans out. Mm, I wouldn't say at all. You're very modest. Um. <laughs> oh, well, I could tell you that the baby was about the right length, the heart was beating and so forth, but could I find a defect in the heart? I don't mm. think so. Mm. So we're going to know what we're good at. Yeah. yeah. So people might just want to ask their team, well, who am I going to see? And what's their experience? Yeah. yeah. So, for example, our caller, if she's really worried about the potential effect on uh, a high fever in early pregnancy, then I would like someone with considerable expertise to be doing that 13-week scan. Yeah. To reassure our caller as much as possible that as far as we can tell, there, mm. are, there are no problems. All right. Let's – I like this one. Let's let's hear, hear from this person. Hi, Dr. Pat, I love listening to your podcast. Um, my name is Amanda Cannon. I'm living in, in Melbourne. Um, I am eight months postpartum with a beautiful little girl, Una. Um, when we were trying to get pregnant, um, I went for genetic screening and came back as a carrier from for the SMA gene. And then my partner got tested and he also came back as a carrier for the same SMA gene. Um, but by that time, we were actually just got pregnant with Una. Um, so we then obviously had some genetic counselling and did um, a CVS test at 12 weeks and thankfully everything was okay and um, Una was born a very healthy baby. Um, I guess now we would really like to have another baby um, and we are aware that the, the risk would still be like one in four. Um, I guess just looking for some general advice um in terms of that, is our only option IVF or could we try naturally? Um, and would you have any kind of general information about that or um, anything that you would recommend? Um, thank you. So this is all in the news, SMA testing um, with the... Could you, yeah. Because they're just starting to fund it, right? Yeah, in Australia, um, this is going to be um, attract some Medicare, Medicare rebate yeah. and some... 
um, providers will bulk bill that. So I think we should do an updated um, episode on Definitely. this. Yeah, because this is dear to my heart, right? And mm. um, and we would love to see more people knowing their status for these things mm. before they have a baby. Yeah, yeah. And again, on on a um, still happens a bit too often. I see people already pregnant. Mm. The first they hear about the test, they're already pregnant. Yeah. So, oh, well, like Amanda, like she went when yeah. she was pregnant to have the test. And some of these people, if they'd been really told about the test, mm. they could have afforded it even without the funding. Yeah. And lots would have had it. Lots would have had it, yeah. yeah. I love it when someone comes to see me first, baby, already pregnant, but the test was already done. Mm. And some of those people learned about the test through our podcast. Oh, is, I know. Oh, my God. Awesome. I've, I've got a yeah. um, someone who's actually DM'd us to say exactly that, and she had six siblings, so they've all gone off, and they're all CF. Well, yeah. Yeah, right. Amazing. Okay, well. So I think that funding it is fantastic because it is a bit expensive. The test we're talking about um, is a, a test that can be done before you're pregnant to find out whether you're a carrier of a number of genetic diseases. Carrier, of course, being someone who's got one of the genes but is themselves perfectly normal. But if they have a baby with someone else who's got a, the gene as well, then they can have a baby with both genes mm. and that baby can have severe disease. The most commonly tested for ones are cystic fibrosis, a lifelong lung and endocrine disease, which is very serious. Fragile X syndrome, which is an inherited form of intellectual disability. And SMA, which is spinal muscular atrophy, which is a super serious neurological genetic disease, which causes uh, death in infants. Mm. So our uh, our caller has got a... Um, the gene for SMA, which you found out when you're already pregnant, mm. and then tested the partner. Remember, you need both genes to have an affected baby. If they've got one gene, then the most your children will be is carries themselves. Mm. Partner's got the gene as well. Mm. This is the worst case scenario. So now we're thinking one in four that, that the baby could have a, uh, a, um, a horrible and, and, and universally fatal condition as a newborn. So uh, thankfully they had a test and it was it was negative, which is which is terrific. Mm. But um, in the end, that's really good luck. Mm. Yeah, because the way the genetics uh, work out, the chances are one in four if you've both got the recessive gene. So what can we do next time? Um, they already know their status. So there's there's sort of three options. Uh, the first, of course, is to just conceive naturally, mm. hope for the best, and Get what you're given, mm. okay. Take, 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 and this is, this is how it always used to happen before the technology was understood and before the genetics was understood. Secondly, you could conceive naturally, have another CVS at 12 weeks, chorionic villus sample, a sample from the early placenta, find out whether the baby was affected or not, and uh, carry on with the pregnancy if things are fine. Consider termination of pregnancy if they're not. And of course, the last option is to have an IVF cycle and create a bunch of embryos which can all be tested prior to implantation and we only and and they only use the ones that are negative or at worst carriers and not use the embryos that have the full blown disease and and that's probably the preferred option for most people uh and uh again there's ethics around um accessibility it's expensive uh and we'd love to move towards a system where the testing was funded and the IVF with the pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which is testing the embryos, that that was also funded for people who are trying to essentially remove highly problematic genes from their family line. Mm. 
And I'm sorry to talk about this, but like from an economic point of view, to fund that rather than to fund someone with a lifelong disability or whatever, like from a government's perspective, I don't know how that makes sense to me. Yeah, that's mm. always struck me as as odd. You would have thought that even if you purely had your economics hat on, yeah, um, lifelong care for someone with cystic fibrosis must be must be amazingly astoundingly expensive. Mm. Um, and and you know, as an as a non expert observer of that of this, you know, uh, from a, a government policy point mm. of view. I'm. I would surprised if the economics ultimately didn't work out in favour of, te- of of testing and, and and using IVF technology for this yeah. process. Remember, we're not talking about experimental stuff. The, the how to do this is all fully known. Mm. Yeah. And you've said it before, Pat, that if somebody is doing um, IVF because of a genetic issue, yep. um, but not an infertility issue, yeah, oh, it always the, works. The, yeah, the, yeah, and yeah. the process is quicker. Like yeah, you know, yeah, because you're not infertile. You're just trying to get rid of some some problematic genes. So. Yeah. So um, the IVF success rates are much better than the quoted averages mm. uh, because you don't actually have a fertility issue mm. and yet you're having IVF for a different reason. It's just the cost and the impact on your on the female's body, you know, like... Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's not a trivial thing to undertake, mm. but you can at least, at least you can expect it'll work. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that helps, Amanda, and I just love how you say Una. Your daughter's name is so gorgeous. It's beautiful. And I'm so glad things worked out for you um, with your um, first pregnancy. Yeah. And uh, good luck. Talk to your docs. Talk to the talk to your your team. Talk to your general practitioner. Talk to the obstetrician from the first birth and make a decision that's right for you and your family. Yeah. Good. All right. We're going to hear from... You're going to love this one, Patty. Hi there. My name is Claire and I'm currently 14 weeks pregnant. Um, thank you for the opportunity to ask questions. I really enjoy the podcast. Uh, so I've seen a lot of discussion, especially on Instagram, about the cascade of interventions. The messaging I found around this is often quite fearful. Um, it talks about basically once you open the gate, then everything just rushes in. I wanted to get your thoughts. Well, first of all, what is the cascade of interventions and your thoughts on whether this is a risk that we should be worried about when giving birth? Uh, further to this, I've also seen claims that an induction will significantly increase your chances of having a C-section. Um, also interested in hearing your thoughts on this and whether it's true. Thank you. Now, the reason this is a big topic, and I think Huge. actually we should do a whole podcast on the cascade of intervention, <laughs> but I just, I thought maybe we could do like just a five minute snapshot of your thoughts on cascade of intervention. All right, here we go. Uh, I think that the term cascade of intervention, what we're talking about is this idea that um, if we interfere in a labour that we may create a problem that needs further interference in the labour and then by doing that further one we create a problem that needs another one. And there's a there's an idea which I think is perhaps a little overly simplistic that if we just don't interfere in the first place we won't cause all the mm. other all the other interferences that might flow from it. Okay. So I think a really good way of illustrating the complexity of the discussion is if we talk about epidurals. It's commonly believe that if you have an epidural in labour that labour will probably slow down, therefore you might need more syntocin on. And then if you have a whole lot of syntocin on, we might force the baby into an abnormal fetal heart rate that we then freak out about and do a caesarean section. Okay. 
Now, in my view, that is something that certainly happens and it's something that we certainly should be cautious and try and that, that we that, to stop it happening. What we don't, it doesn't necessarily follow, however, that if the first intervention is something that's a very, very good idea, that negative consequences need to follow from that. So, for example, if someone says to me, I I'm, don't want an epidural because I'm afraid of the consequences that might come from that, then sometimes I'll say to that person, well, let me give you another scenario. Let me give you a scenario where you're in labour and it's taking an awfully long time and you're um, in pain and distressed. And what we really want to do is use a syntocinon infusion to make your labour go a bit faster. And in order to, to do that, given that you're already in a lot of pain, why don't we put in an epidural, take the pain away, put the syntocin up and push you on. Now what we're trying to do, achieve by doing that is getting that woman too fully dilated so that a normal birth, a vaginal birth is on the table. Mm. If we didn't push the labour along, the labour was taking way too long, that can correlate with poor outcomes and it can correlate with high cesarean section rates if the labour is way too slow. So in fact, we've used an epidural to increase the chances of, of that woman having a vaginal birth, not decrease them. Mm. So... In that scenario, that's seen as a terrific idea and a genius move and not a cascade of intervention. Mm. So my, I know you said five minutes, but this is a complicated <laughs> one. My view on this is that is that I don't know that it's terribly helpful to talk about cascades of intervention because the implication is that any intervention is bad. I think what we should really be doing is saying every intervention has a potential benefit and some potential downsides. And we should be very careful about using intervention. And every time we go to use intervention, we should be using all of our knowledge, all of our learnings, all of our experience, all of our dedication to women's well-being to say, absolutely, am I doing this for the right reasons? Um, is this going to help? And, and are the known downsides to this intervention worth it for the benefit that I'm trying to bring about. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to put a little plug in for our program, the Grow My Baby program, because the birth module alone is like 15 pieces of information. Yep. And you might, as the person having the baby, you might be the person that has to assess these yeah, yeah, interventions that, that are suggested, yeah. so you this, know, with this, your partner. Yeah. yeah, and that's why we made it, isn't it? Because yeah. You got to learn about it. You, you got to you got to know more, not less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because ultimately, it may come down to you to decide on on the advice of your team. Yeah, but ultimately, you may need to decide what are the what are the risks in going more than forty one weeks. Yeah, do I like those risks or not? Yeah, and especially if you're in a busy public obstetric hospital where you don't have a primary kind of caregiver, you have a team. Team. Um, and people aren't sort of following your pregnancy along, um, and then you're in a space where you don't really know anyone um, having a baby. So, yeah, yeah, you've got to be the one that knows the risks, the benefits, can make those decisions, and, um, yes, we, we definitely do cover that in, in, in good detail where you can feel um, like you've got the knowledge to then say, yes, 
know what happens if yep. I do that, what happens if I do nothing. Yeah, or at least yeah. to feel part of the discussion. Yeah. Can I put my own little plug in for the cascade of intervention? So for those that are new to us, I had my first two babies before I met Pat. Um, and in my first pregnancy, I just was hell-bent on not having any intervention because of this very term, cascade of interventions. It was really drilled into me, don't let them near you because then you'll have this cascade of intervention. I could have had one major intervention that would have changed my first birth dramatically, and that is I could have said yes to an induction. So I went to 42 weeks. By then my babies were massive, (laughs) big massive heads. Um, and if I perhaps had have not been so stubborn and not been so anti-intervention or putting it, lumping all the intervention into one big pool and saying all intervention is bad, I think that perhaps I would have had a different outcome. Yeah, I, I guess maybe you might have been able to divide the concept of of intervention into one list of interventions that that would be. Uh, deal breakers for you mm. or and another list of, yeah, they're things I'll consider if you can convince me that the benefit is more, worse than the risk. Mm. Yeah, I think I should have said that to all interventions, to be honest. You know, they, in my, in my now that I know so much more about birth, um, my thinking has changed so dramatically to me thinking that every intervention should be assessed on its merit and I wouldn't put any intervention into a deal breaker. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's where I've got to. Ta-da. Well, well done. <laughs> My work here is done. Good day to you. <laughs> All right. I'm going to read one now. Okay. So this is anonymous. I'm 35 weeks pregnant with my first. Very excited to meet our baby, but I won't lie and say there are a few things that make me nervous. My baby has been measuring big since 20 weeks with his head in the 95th centile. I'm wanting a vaginal birth and my midwife team don't seem concerned by the size of my baby's head. However, I can't help but think of the worst with tearing more than first or second degree and the need for an assisted birth, which I really don't want. My question is, is this normal to feel this way? But also, what are your thoughts on how successful a vaginal birth will be with minimal tearing and no assistance? Or am I just overthinking and not having enough confidence in my body to birth a healthy, big baby? Yeah. Great question. <laughs> they're, they're so good, these uh, these questions. People people. Are- Get into the heart of things. Fantastic. Uh, we do a lot of ultrasounds these days. We identify babies with big heads. We say it's a big head. You know, mm. and it just sows the it sows the uh, seeds of doubt. Mm. Yeah. Um, there's nothing actually wrong with having a baby's head on the 95th centile. I'm sure my head was on the 99th centile. <laughs> if, there, if there were, uh, you know, if there were ultrasounds back then, and I fitted out. Uh, uh, no, the point I'm trying to make is that that's not abnormal. It's just on the upper end of the normal range. Mm. So there are a lot of things that that happen in the normal birth process. The head squishes up. Mm. The skull bones overlap. Um, the vagina stretches and the perineum stretches. And, um, and human beings have evolved to have big heads and uh, much bigger than the vagina. And yet, out they come. So, what would we do about someone with a head on the ninety-fifth centile, and the rest of everything else is fine, and the estimated fetal weight EFW is otherwise fine? The head's a bit big, but baby's not giant. There's there's no real option but to give that birth a try. Mm. Um, and uh, it, it's most uncommon for us to say baby's too big. 
you should just have a section. We we would potentially do that from time to time in somebody who had a baby with an estimated fetal weight above four kilos, especially in a very petite person with an estimated fetal weight above four kilos, and especially if that person was, was keen on Caesar as an option. But it's very, very, very hard to, for us to predict, almost impossible to predict how people will go. Mm-hmm. And we've all seen very petite women have great big babies with no dramas. And we've all seen much taller, uh, uh, larger women have small babies in obstruct. Mm. And there are too many factors. So what do we do? We labour and see how we go. Mm. What can be done uh, with the big head? Um, there, um, we can uh, um, use our obstetric uh, expertise to make sort of make sure that head crowns up nicely. There's some, it's in the right position. Yep, mm. supporting the perineum. Um, judicious use of elective episiotomy. Mm. It's a it's a it's a um, contentious one, but and I cut very few episiotomies. Um, but if I'm in a situation where I'm really concerned that the tear that might happen would be much worse than the epizy that I might cut, then mm. I might I might cut an epizy in some circumstances. And then if tearing occurs, expert repair. Mm. Yeah. Buy I, someone who knows what they're doing straight away. Yeah. 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 I mean, she's said more than a first or second degree te- tear, so she's she's done a listening. <laughs> yes, but third <laughs> so degree tears are a thing. Very, yeah, yeah. very hard to predict. Mm. Yep. It's easy to get a third degree tear and look back and say, oh, "I should have had a section," mm. but really, that that is not um, the the logic doesn't really work that way. You know the outcome already. Mm. Yep. Um, if you get away with a big baby, then you look back and say, "I shouldn't have had a section." Mm. So, um, I'm glad I didn't have a section. So, um, really, it's it's uh, when we try and look at what features are going to um, accurately predict a third degree tear. It's really hard, mm. uh, and we we probably would only get really interested in not labouring at all in someone who had uh, a very large baby, diabetes, mm. and then there's another group which are a separate consideration because they're not the same denominator. They're another group who've had previous significant obstetric trauma. Mm. So if you've had a, a previous third degree. You might consider having a section for the next baby, even if the next baby is a normal size head, mm. 50th centile head, because you're just not prepared to take that risk. Mm. But that's a separate group because we're, we're really talking about the all-comers group, the first, the first, in, in particular yeah. the first time. Yeah. yeah. And is it fair to say don't don't be scared of if an indu- induction's suggested as you get to your know, due date or post dates in this circumstance? If an induction is suggested on the basis of Fetal size? Mm. Yeah, well, that's like getting back to our discussion before about intervention. Uh, there will be pros and cons to that. Mm. And the wide patient, well, the wise patient would ask the team, what are the pros and cons? Mm. Uh, if, you, if I'm induced, am I more likely to have a section? Probably. Um, uh, if I'm induced and the induction goes well, is there any increased chances of tearing or third degree tear based on the fact that it was an induction versus a uh, versus a spontaneous labour? No. Mm. Uh, the head's coming out at that size, coming down the same vagina, whether the, whether the labour was induced or, or spontaneous. Yep. Well, Anonymous, you might have had your baby. Um, I hope it went well. I hope it went well. 
Can you, if you're listening to this, can you get back to us? Tell us how you went. We'd love to know. It's a, it's a really good question because it, it highlights an area where, where it's something that the, our, the women we care for really want to know mm. and we don't know the answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We can only make sort of educated. Yeah, and we can only make safe plans mm. so that however it goes, the care ultimately is good. Mm. Can we predict performance in labour? Not really. No. We've got two more on this. Far away. Okay, go. We're on a roll. All right, we're on a roll. <laughs> Hi, Bridget and Pat. I'm about to start my first round of IVF with a donor egg after going through premature ovarian failure after the birth of my first child. I'm just wondering, given the absence of hormones in creating this baby, will this affect my ability to breastfeed or will my body develop the hormones as it's growing the baby, hopefully? Thanks. Bye. Awesome question. Sorry you had premature ovarian failure, but awesome that you've got a donor. Yeah. Amazing. Um, easy one. No, you'll be, you'll be fine. Mm. Um, the breastfeeding is um, is kick-started by a number of hormonal processes that go on during the labour, and the actual start of lactation is mostly kick-started by the placenta leaving leaving your body uh, just after the baby comes out. And um, it, it the, your, your breasts don't know that it was a donor egg. Mm. All the processes are the same, and you, if, you'll be fine. Great. And if you breastfed well last time, you'll do so again. Yes. Yeah, that's right. You know, it, whether you breastfeed or not isn't because of the donor egg. No. Nope. Yep. How exciting. Go it for is that. Exciting. Yeah, good luck. I hope I hope the donor egg works and, and um, you have a beautiful pregnancy and baby. I knew that would be fast, but I could have answered that one. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you, Dr. Bridget. Well done, you. Um, I've got one more for this app. <laughs> Hi, Pat and Bridget. First of all, I want to say thank you for your amazing podcast and resources that it offers. Um, I'd like to stay anonymous because my question is a little bit raw at the moment. My partner and I started our IVF journey in February this year and I became pregnant in April. Sadly, when I was six weeks, I found out HCG was dropping and a short time later, miscarried. That miscarriage lasted for four weeks, so it was quite tough. I became pregnant again in July, and upon a viability scan 10 days ago, expected to be measuring seven weeks, but measured at six weeks with a low heart rate of 81. A scan this morning to follow up on this revealed that there was now no heartbeat and growth had actually stopped at six weeks. So as you can imagine, I'm quite upset about this um, and it's quite raw. My question is around what should be considered now in terms of next steps? We've had two miscarriages in a row. Do we need to consider embryo testing? Do my partner and I need to be tested ourselves to rule anything out um, with two miscarriages in a row? what would be best practice in our management moving forward. Thank you again for your great podcast. Oh, the poor woman. Yes, I'm so sorry that's mm. happened. And well done you for reaching out mm. you know, just after you've had that news. Mm. Um, yeah. And a miscarriage that went for four weeks, that would be so distressing. Yeah. So th- this is a, a super stressful um, situation and one that happens a fair bit because the the maths the maths are sort of not in our favour, um, you know. Um, 
the, the mathematics of pregnancy work out fine that you'll have the family size that you want eventually, but early pregnancy loss is really common. Mm. So if you have two early pregnancy losses in a row, then mathematically speaking, that's very, you know, that's very upsetting. But mathematically speaking, there's probably nothing wrong with you um, because you've had two reasonably common events happen in a row. And as human beings, we look for patterns, but there may be no pattern. So um, for, I always say to, <clears throat> say to people in this situation, if you flipped a coin and you got two heads in a row, that's not remotely weird. But if you flipped a coin and got 20 heads in a row, then there's something going on with the coin. Mm. So where do we draw the line and say the couple have had a run of bad luck versus there's a problem here that needs further investigation? And... Uh, but by sort of common agreement in Australia, it's after three consecutive first trimester losses, which is really upsetting for yeah. people. And can be a space of like, what, two years yeah, or something? Yeah, that could, like, that could yeah. happen over a long time. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. if this um, caller's having IVF already, like, yep. it, it, yeah. you know, one, obviously one, it's an issue. Yeah, one of the things you have to take into consideration is the couple's underlying capacity to become pregnant in the first place. So, for example, a couple with really, really good fertility who can become pregnant after a couple of months of trying every time, have less to fear from recurrent miscarriage than a couple where each one of those takes them two years to mm. conceive. And then if they have their three, it's going to be six years. Make sense? Mm. Yeah. So, 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 you have, so you have to look at a number of factors. And the other big one is age. If a 21-year-old has two miscarriages in a row, I'm significantly less concerned than a 39-year-old having two miscarriages in a row. Not because there's some, not because the 39-year-old is more likely to have something wrong with them, but they've got less time mm. to complete their family size. Yeah. Um, so what do we do? Um, there are a bunch of tests that can be done to see whether recurrent pregnancy loss is a coincidence or a underlying problem and those tests um, some of them are expensive some of them are invasive some of them are, um, are uh, slow and difficult to have and that's why we don't jump at the first miscarriage or even the second uh, but the point at which you come in with the further discussions really is um, ne- really needs to be tailored to the couple and what their individual needs are mm. Um, in an IVF situation, uh, it's it, it's often um, in some ways a little bit easier because there's a, there'll be a bunch of frozen embryos there, and I hope that our call has got some frozen embryos left. Um, and and really, the first thing that um, that I would suggest is that is that they go back to the IVF provider and, and talk about what can be done to transfer the the, the best embryo mm. uh, next time. Now that may may or may not have already been done for the first two, but um, often the it, it sounds a bit awful. But the embryo's got a scoring process, mm. so they kind of get a score for how good they look down a microscope. And um, we we, cer- we certainly like to do to to transfer the the best one. And um, sometimes the IVF process is is done for a current miscarriage because it gives us the opportunity not to take the embryo that just nature picks, but we can pick the best one down the microscope. So definitely a difficult situation, most likely to be a run of bad luck, mm. 
but an underlying medical problem is possible. And talking to the IVF team about using the best embryo, either by its visual quality down a microscope or by taking an embryo biopsy and testing it, mm. um, is um, is uh, part of the, the next step. And from a parent point of view, like, is there anything that she could be doing or anything that, well, it's too... They've got embryos, so the embryos are done already. The male's yeah. out of the equation, but yeah. is there anything she could be doing? Yeah, um, there, there, there is, but they might be things that have been done already. Mm. So number one is be a non-smoker. Number two is have the next embryo at a at a good body weight. So that may, you know, in this case, they might might, might have already been done, but embryo transfers seem to go better in, at optimum body weights. Um, and lastly come into the next pregnancy as balanced psychologically and spiritually as you can. So mm. so we want people to deal with the pregnancy loss, which mm. is tough and confrontational. But it's really good if you can come into the next pregnancy naturally, naturally conceived or IVF in the right mind space. Mm. And we had the dietologist on a couple of weeks ago and she was talking about, you know, your diet, your pre- Pregnancy diet and, yeah. and how how looking at your micronutrients um, and your macros um, to get that right too. So yeah, that that's be... something I would really recommend because it's it's doable. You know, yeah. it's, it's uh, something you can do. You yeah, can do, yeah. and so, it makes you feel good because you're being proactive rather than you know the process is sort of being done too, isn't it? Like you yes, just, yeah. especially with IVF. Yeah. Um, so um, how much of an effect does does it have? We don't really know. Mm. Um, some a uh, huge amount don't know. But it's something that you can do to be and feel powerful. What are the chances we had two beautiful Irish accents on this episode? Fantastic. <laughs> Love uh, it. Good. Well, we're going to wrap it up there. That's that's quite a, a longer episode than we intended. But there was lots of fantastic questions that um, I hope that has really helped lots of people because they're individual questions but can be definitely generalised. So, Thank yeah. you so much for contacting us. It's yep. fantastic. We love your reviews. Um, if you want to jump onto Apple um, Podcasts and leave a review or on Spotify, you can give us five stars or just jump onto DMs and, and tell us uh, what you've been love listening to, what you want more of, what you don't like listening to. We like it all. Fantastic. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. Bye for now.